0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, October 3rd at 1030 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hello. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. After the news, we'll have our latest Bill of the Month interview with Kara Anthony of Kaiser Health News. It's about those pesky facility fees hospitals and other medical providers often charge and how you can try to avoid them. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. And also, we are pleased this week to announce the arrival of podcast panelist Anna Edney's new daughter, Rowan Grace, who arrived a couple of weeks early. Mom and baby are doing fine, and we will see Anna back at the table early next year. So I guess possibly the biggest health news of the week hasn't happened yet. President Trump, who has had a so far tumultuous week as he faces an impeachment inquiry, is headed to Florida as we tape this to sign an executive order about Medicare Advantage. Kimberly, you were on the background
1: call this morning. What's going to be in this uh, executive order? Right. Well, the president is trying to, you know, set some sort of agenda on health care forward heading into the 2020 elections. And he's also, by doing that, seeking to contrast his vision for health care against. Progressive Democrats who want to see Medicare for all, and so one of the ways that he's doing that is by um, saying that he that his administration is working to strengthen Medicare and to strengthen Medicare Advantage, which is run by private plans. It's a little easier because of the way that Medicare Advantage uh, is built for the administration to make changes to that program. And so what they've done is they've they've already set in motion a plan that would allow more supplemental benefits, things like receiving. Uh, reimbursement for nutrition and for rides to a doctor's appointment. And they're going to be broadening that even more to things like adult daycare. Um, They're also looking at ways to give people more access to more medical providers by letting nurse practitioners and physician assistants practice without the supervision of a doctor. Which Um, which Which is usually a state thing, right? Can they do that? Exactly. Well, they really didn't get into that many details about it on the call this morning, but it's one of those issues that has you know, very interesting players who are advocating for it, groups like AARP, groups that are extremely conservative and want to reduce government regulations. And all of this is coming at a time where the Trump administration is actively fighting Obamacare in court. Um, we could receive a decision on that any day. And so they're aiming to sort of show their health care plan and make it more broad than Obamacare. That was something we heard on the call this morning, is that the president's health care vision goes beyond Obamacare. And so they're looking at things like Medicare, which sets the tone for the rest of the health care system and what, as well.
0: So let's talk about just for people who don't remember Medicare Advantage versus Medicare, because this is obviously an effort to beef up Medicare advantage even more it's it's already pretty popular right
2: it's grown it's going to be 24 million people it's really amazing how much it's grown so it's it's like a third of medicare now yes so, and, and on its way up yes.
0: and yet i mean i guess and the the trade off is that if you join medicare advantage it you have private it's a private plan that basically takes your you know the federal government's medicare money and it gives you all these extra benefits now about to be even more more benefits, but uh, and the trade off is that you have to stay within their network, whereas in regular Medicare, you don't. And I guess more and more people are willing to do that for the or they find that the extra benefits are worth it.
2: It seems that way. I mean, I think that the trade off there are lots of um, trade offs. You and when you're in traditional Medicare, you get to go see any provider who'll take Medicare, which um, is most of them, right? Yes. Um, so it's interesting to see how they're really pushing this. I think that, um, you know. Speaking to, adding on to what Kimberly said, I think that the president really needs to have a healthcare message. And so, you know, on the call this morning, they were talking about letting seniors control their own healthcare, trying to and trying to get away from socialist destruction of of Medicare. They're talking about how they want to shore up Medicare. And so um, you're going to continue to see this. The policy, remember, an executive order is pretty vague and gives a lot of discretion to agencies. Um, But you're going to continue to see the administration talking about how they're trying to bolster um, private plans, trying to encourage people to go into medical savings accounts in Medicare now. And you're going to continue to talk. About they're, they're talking about how they're trying to lower costs and give people control over their health care. I'm thinking ahead to what Democratic
3: criticisms of these announcements are likely to be. I think that there will probably be some talk about comparing this to like attempts to privatize Medicare because it's giving these private plans a bigger toehold and um, and we should point promoting out that, them that the private plans actually
0: um, are more expensive for the taxpayers than traditional Medicare. Um, and that was done very much on purpose originally by the Republicans in the Medicare prescription drug bill in 2003. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it got scaled back somewhat in the Affordable Care Act so that they're but they're they're still
3: being overpaid, though. They're right. still, so and there's a lot of fraud within Medicare Advantage, which many people have reported on. Um, so I'm anticipating that. Also, it's interesting that they're framing it as giving seniors more choice and more control when, like Julie said, they actually will be restricted to fewer providers under a private plan than under uh, traditional Medicare.
0: So, so I mean, I just I feel like this is a continuation of the the Republicans want to push more people into Medicare Advantage and the Democrats want to At least be careful, although the Democrats have to acknowledge that it's popular. Nobody's forced into Medicare Advantage. It's a choice that you make. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: But another thing to keep in mind is that because of, you know, just the way the law works, if any changes like this that they would want to make to traditional Medicare it would have to go through legislation. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of authority to make broad changes in Medicare Advantage. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that they're able to go that route. Um, another thing to point out is that Medicare Advantage is extremely lucrative for health insurers. Um, there are some health insurers that, you know, bring in more money from Medicare Advantage than from any other part of their business. So that's another th- thing. To I think most mind. of
0: the companies that
2: are in Medicare Advantage mm-hmm. bring in more money from Medicare Advantage. It's from any other part of their business.
1: I think that's true, yeah.
2: They've just continuously tried to do things to help the insurance industry. So, you know, I, I'm wondering whether we're going to continue to see additional things in regulatory um Pieces that are coming later this year, so we'll
0: we'll keep watching. So, of course, I mean, we've talked about this repeatedly. The president has been promising since last spring to unveil, you know, a health agenda, and then it got scaled back, and they said, well, we're going to unveil contingency plans in case that somebody mentioned the the appeals court. you know, I Haven't rules, seen those either. Rules, <laughs> and and we're going to do something about drug prices, and yet, sort of those other two things: the contingency plans for what if the the Affordable Care Act is found unconstitutional, and more executive action on drug prices, particularly international drug prices, those don't, from what we can tell,
1: those don't seem to be in on today's health agenda, right? So far, no. But I, my understanding is that this is one of a few that we should expect. And of course, a lot sort of hinges on what exactly the Fifth Circuit decides to do on Obamacare. Um, it could be that they give the Trump administration essentially more time mm-hmm. that would, you know, punt this past 2020, um, in which case they could really just kind of you know, focus on the things that, you know, they have decided to make a priority instead of a backup plan to the Affordable Care Act. be the decision's in that secret server somewhere in the
3: White House. Oh, boy. <laughs>
0: no, it's not, uh, as far as we know. <laughs> All right, well, also this week, the administration issued guidance on wellness programs. Those are generally programs that employers use to encourage workers to practice healthy behaviors or get preventive health care. Under the Affordable Care Act, employers can put up to 30% of premium dollars at risk, so to speak, for workers basically to earn discounts by meeting certain targets on smoking status or weight or blood pressure or by filling out detailed health surveys, Uh, Health policy analysts say this can be unfair to older or sicker people with pre-existing conditions who may not be able to meet the targets and who will end up paying more than their healthier colleagues. But what the administration is doing here is trying to extend that to the individual market. So people buying their own insurance might have to meet medical goals or pay more. Now, on the one hand, this 10-state demonstration was actually ordered by the Affordable Care Act itself when it passed in 2010, and the Obama administration just never set it up. On the other hand, Since 2010, we've seen increasing evidence that these wellness programs
2: don't really improve health or save money. So why are they doing this? I think this is something the administration philosophically is interested in. And, you know, we don't know whether any states will come forward and and participate in this. Um, But the research, as you mentioned has shown additional evidence that these kind of wellness programs don't really work. Um, more than eighty percent of large employers now have these kinds of programs. Um, Although they
0: can, I mean, they can vary. We have one, you know, here at KFF that just reimburses you for, for a gym membership, or a, or right. actually use it for my Pilates classes. <laughs> but but it's not. A, I mean, it's not one of these sort of we're going to take. It doesn't have any impact on, on premiums, premiums, right? Right. That's so the key. so I think yeah, it's hard when right. they when you say eighty percent of employers have them, they're all quite different. It's
2: a variety of different things. Some can offer discounts for premiums, others can do other things. Um, You know, one thing that's kind of interesting in the research is that disease management programs, where they actually try to manage people who have chronic conditions like asthma or cancer or atrial fibrillation or anything like that, those do seem to have a return on investment. And so those may be worth it. But the things that are, you know, more like you should go and have a, a health risk assessment from your doctor and, you know, get additional screenings for things. Those haven't seemed to pay off, at least from what we see in the research so far.
3: And there's just concern that this will penalize people with pre-existing conditions, um, people with chronic conditions. If if the premiums are tied to something like weight or blood pressure, um, it, it will advantage people <laughs> who um, are already healthier and disadvantage people who um, struggle. And, yeah, that... The evidence out there shows that it it doesn't um, improve health or improve uh, worker productivity, absenteeism, all all these different measures in the employer space. And yet the wellness industry is like an $8 billion industry Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Another thing to keep an eye on here is there's also a lot of privacy concerns. Um, A lot of these programs ask um, enrollees to give a lot of uh, health data um, in order to qualify for premium discounts or whatnot, and so there's privacy concerns there.
0: And even though there's supposed to be a third party between the the employer and the employee, that doesn't always happen. And as we know, information can be hacked. Yep. So. We'll, we'll sort of. I'll be interested to see if which states, if any, sort of step up to do this. So Congress is not here this week, but we have still had a fair bit of congressional news anyway. Uh, one item is the resignation of New York Republican Congressman Chris Collins, who pled guilty in federal court to two felony counts of insider trading based on his board membership in an Australian biotech company while he was a member of the congressional committee that oversees the drug industry. Uh, my co- uh, Kaiser Health News colleagues helped uncover the story of how he got his family and friends to buy the stock in the company, including former HHS Secretary Tom Price. And uh, later, he tipped off family members when a key drug the company was developing failed a clinical trial, which did not help the worth of the company. Um, And Collins was actually reelected after he was indicted, (laughs) though he was stripped of his committee seats. Now it looks like he'll serve at least several years in federal prison. Um, What, if anything, does this tell us about Congress and its coziness with the drug industry? Or is this sort of a one-off, there are always going to be sort of scandals on both sides.
2: I think there are always things like this. I mean, we also have seen, you know, Duncan Hunter in California face an indictment, and and there are always challenges. They're sort of like isolated incidents, I think. Um, But... They're the extreme case. That doesn't mean that there's not coziness between the industry and Congress. Um, you don't have to be a convicted felon facing four to five years in in prison to be able to uh, do something to that might may not be illegal, but might be unethical. For example, I mean, this story is kind of amazing. He was standing on the White House lawn at the picnic at the congressional, at the congressional picnic. picnic when he called his son to warn him about this. But, you know, I mean, back when Tom Price, the congressman's friend, was in Congress, he also was trading stocks and trying to, not just with this particular company, but others, uh, trying to enrich himself. And and so we see this happen from time to time. I'm
0: sort of surprised it doesn't happen more often. It's just so easy. I mean, members of Congress are, you know, privy to a lot of proprietary information that can move financial markets and I mean I know Congress has has passed several laws in in the last several years to try and limit this and and yet there's still it, it seems it's very tempting you can you can trade on your office to make a lot of money if you so desire
3: There's a, I think it also shows how long the fuse can be I mean the the indictment and the the wrongdoing was now years ago, and it's taken this long to uh, get— Well, uh, not that many years ago. It was at was
0: the congressional picnic in 2017. Sure, sure, not
3: that many years, but still, it's, it's um, you know, yes, <laughs> it's kind of a slow burn. <laughs> it is kind of a slow burn.
0: Well, we haven't talked about reproductive health for several weeks. And Alice, I am glad you were here because there is a lot of news. Uh, Let's start with Title 10, the federal family planning program. New Trump administration rules on abortion counseling have taken effect, prompting Planned Parenthood and several states to drop out of the program. So this week, the administration redistributed those funds to other organizations. HHS says the redistribution will mean that services will be as available as they were before. But that's not necessarily the case, right?
3: No, not necessarily the case because Because only current program uh, participants were eligible for these new funds. Um, So only people who were already approved to be in the program and who are complying with the new rules. The ban on abortion referrals is the biggest one getting all the headlines. And so in states where all of the Title X uh, grantees quit in protest, and there are several of those states, I, uh, I think eight or nine. So there are no grantees left in those states. So there was no one there able to apply for the new funding. However, in some states where some grantees quit and some didn't, the ones that didn't did get extra funds, but not as much to be able to meet what hundreds of thousands of folks who were being served by the old grantees. It's, it's kind of complicated. But the main picture is HHS made um, almost $34 million newly available. And distributed it to um, about 50 different um, groups around the country. But there are still several states and lots and lots of areas of the country that still have no Title X providers at all. HHS says that they are working to address it. They're working to find new enrollees. Um, so we will see what happens there.
0: Yeah, I remember when, you know, back in back in 2017, when they were trying to defund Planned Parenthood, the the Republicans were saying, well, community health centers can, you know, sort of step right. up and fill this void. And the community health centers said, no, we can't. <laughs> right, right. We just don't have the capacity. So
3: Right. And so Title X, even before the new rule, was a tough program to be a part of. There's there's just a lot of things you have to do in order to qualify to be a part of it. And so. And we should point out, I mean,
0: it's more than family planning. It's family planning yep. and sexual sexually transmitted disease um, uh, prevention and treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to being a Title 10 provider. Cancer
3: screenings, sex ed, all kinds of stuff. Um, And so the thinking that I'm hearing from a lot of folks um, in my reporting is that the providers willing to be a part of Title 10 were already a part of Title 10. It's not like there are a ton of providers out there who are now going to say, actually, I do feel like joining this program um, because they either don't have the capacity, even with extra funding or for other reasons. So, um, we will see if if HHS is able to find a bunch of new providers who meet the qualifications. Um, we haven't seen that yet. They've only given grants to existing.
1: But couldn't a court decision kind of, you know, reverse all of this and turn it all around? Because I know it's it's allowed to be enforced now, yes. but...
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ninth Circuit could rule any day. Um, uh, Lots of states and Planned Parenthood and other groups, the AMA, are asking for the rule to be blocked. It already has been in effect. Uh, They declined to block it before it went into effect. But because it was the same Ninth Circuit that allowed it to go into effect in the first place, folks are not super optimistic that they're going to swoop in and block it now.
0: The 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 on-bank panel that heard it is more Republican than Democrat. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. Which is sort of sad that that's how you now predict how decisions are to come sure. out, but that's how you predict how decisions are mostly going to come out.
3: Exactly. And so um, that's going on. There, that's on the injunction. There's still arguments about the merits of the case and whether or not the title, the administration's Title X rule is unconstitutional going on at the circuit court level. Um, but the, the thinking is it's already in effect. Courts haven't shown a willingness to block it and may not.
0: And Rebecca, we talked about this a little bit last week, but is there any indication that Congress might, or particularly the Democratic House, might try to use a spending bill to block this? This is Title X. I actually started covering Title X because it started holding up the HHS appropriation bill in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, so this is an issue that Congress has taken a look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that Democrats will be successful in their bid to, to try to overturn it.
3: So the House did pass a spending bill that overturned it, and the Senate was set to pass a spending bill that left it alone. And Democrats said, we demand a vote on an amendment on this, a, a vote that wouldn't have passed anyways because they don't have the numbers. But right. um, but it
0: would have passed the committee. That's why they didn't right, have the markup. Yes,
3: right. And so Republicans, rather than have this vote that could be potentially embarrassing, just decided no markup at all. <laughs> Um, which so I've we just found won't interesting past the Department of Health and Human Services budget, because or they'll take it straight to the floor and skip committee markup, which they also have the ability to yes. do. Yes,
0: and we should point out that, that it, is the, the, it is the new fiscal year and the government is running because the president did sign. Yes, we're So, on. so we're, we're now, the next the next big date is November 21st, and we'll talk about this lots more. All right, well, still on reproductive health, um, we saw federal judges strike down and uphold some state bans this week. In Georgia, a judge said that state so-called heartbeat bill that seeks to ban abortion as early as six weeks gestation could not take effect while the court case continues, and in Virginia a judge blocked part of that state's new restrictions, mostly things that have been deemed an undue burden by the Supreme Court previously. But the judge did say the state could implement the part of the law calling for mandatory ultrasounds and waiting periods and requiring that abortions only be performed by doctors rather than by physician assistants or nurse practitioners, as is allowed in several other states. I guess we assume that both these decisions will just be appealed further up the court chain, right? And eventually we'll get to the Supreme Court.
3: Yes, although I think they're also a perfect example of the two sort of lanes of abortion jurisprudence or whatever we want to call it right now, um, litigation, uh, where you have the sweeping bans like. Georgia passed, like Alabama passed, Ohio, Missouri, Um, lots of states are passing that. And they're passing it explicitly saying, we hope this will force the Supreme Court to reconsider, revisit, potentially overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, Since lower courts are all bound by Supreme Court precedent, we're expecting all of these to be struck down by lower courts. And so far, all of them have been. And it's interesting that the states are saying we hope to uh, force the Supreme Court to take this up because you can't force the Supreme Court to do anything. (laughs) You can try, but uh, they don't have to. Uh, They have complete control over what cases they take, what cases they don't. So There are a couple of things they have to take mandatorily, but none of these are among them. Exactly, exactly. And it it could be a long time before we see any kind of circuit split, which could um, put pressure on the Supreme Court to step in and resolve that. If one circuit court in one part of the country says these bans are good, the other one says these are not, they have to step in to resolve. But even then, they don't have to. Um, And so the other, the Virginia case, shows these more targeted, narrower abortion laws that have restricted the procedure a lot in a lot of areas of the country. And like we see in this court, many of them sort of survive the judicial challenges. So I think those cases are likelier to make their way up through the courts and be upheld um, because the Supreme Court and lower courts can do a lot and can uphold a lot of state laws that do restrict abortion access a great deal without ever touching Roe versus Wade, without ever touching the Casey standard of an undue burden, um, just under sort of the current world we live in.
0: Rebecca, I'm sorry, Kimberly. You were about to say something.
3: No, no, I was going to say
1: um, I, I was kind of agreeing with with you on, on the different aspects. Um, I, I remember when they when they filed that Virginia case that they were it was just they were more optimistic about an outcome because it was they right on side. the heels. Oh, I'm sorry, the plaintiffs, the challengers, uh, the challengers mm-hmm. because and because they had just won this case in Texas regarding um, undue burdens. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of thought, you know, why don't we look at some of these other restrictions on abortion and bring them up through the courts? But that was, you know, before the Supreme Court's current makeup. And I remember we had asked them at the time, you know, given the Trump administration and, you know, the president's promise to appoint um, judges who would, you know, restrict abortion access. You know, how concerned are you about, um, you know, whether this is successful or not. And they, they were kind of saying, well, we think they'll uphold the decision that was made in 2016, just um, which had put barriers on, you know, how doctors had to practice and also limited the w- also specified the way that abortion clinics had to be set up. Um, so I, I'm just not sure that they have that same optimism that they did when they first filed. But well, one of lawsuit. the cases
0: that the, the, that the Supreme Court, we could find out that they're going to mm-hmm. take up, you know, as, as early as, as this week or next mm-hmm. week, um, is out of Louisiana, yes. which is an um, a admitting privileges mm-hmm. case that is identical to the Texas law that the Supreme Court, that part of which the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. It's the same circuit. And yet, the 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 appeals court there said, Yeah, Louisiana, you can go ahead and do this, even though in the same circuit, the Supreme Court had said, No, you can't do that. So we'll see. I mean, that would be a case where the the Supreme Court would have to say, Yeah, that thing we decided three years ago, we don't believe that anymore. Right. It's
2: It's fascinating. The Supreme Mm -hmm. Court term starts Monday, and there are so many similarities between this Louisiana Louisiana law and the Texas law. Um, Some people argue that the impact might be different, but really, I would be fascinated to see what happens. I mean, John Roberts has been one who uh, tends to stick with precedent. And, you know, you would think that they would not want to take a big risk this way, not just in the substance, but also it would have major political implications. But you never know. Um, so, I mean, with the makeup with uh, Justice Kavanaugh there, he was we're, a year ago we were talking about his confirmation and that's made a big difference.
3: Absolutely. And there's so many different factors. I mean, for one, uh, the chief justice dissented in that Texas case. And so he, he wanted, was on the losing side. Right? Yeah, yeah. He wanted to allow the the Texas law to go into effect. Um, but now he's in a different position of, you know, he's concerned about precedent and the court's reputation. So that could be really interesting. Also, where basically the Fifth Circuit has boxed in. The Supreme Court and made it so that they have to take the case in order to uphold precedent. If they do nothing, they essentially say, It's a (laughs) free-for-all. Although
0: I heard – I didn't. I was listening to an interview with one of the lawyers just this morning Mm -hmm. who was saying that this would be the kind of case where the Supreme Court would not so much take it but just reverse it and send it – just say, yeah, They could summarily reverse it. Goodbye,
3: yeah. That's possible for sure. You know, there's there's just so many things that could happen. They could summarily reverse it. They could deny cert, which would leave the Fifth Circuit ruling and the Louisiana law in place. They could – take it and hold arguments and either roll very narrowly on it, saying, oh, the facts in the case make it so that this doesn't overturn our precedent from 2016, or they could go ham and (laughs) use it as as an opportunity to revisit Roe versus Wade. I think it's interesting that people talk about certain cases implicating Roe more than others. And while that's true, Really, any case that touches abortion, you know, the Supreme Court has the leeway to to sort of do what they want. It's funny.
0: We keep talking about whether or not the, the Supreme Court will have this big Affordable Care Act case in front of it, you know, next June in the middle of the campaign. Whether or not that's true, I think it's unlikely that they won't have some big abortion case mm-hmm. in the middle of the campaign next year. I yeah. think that's if it's not this Louisiana case, there's an Indiana case that's that's been kicking around. And, and then the some Chicago of the ones case. that's right in Chicago case, of the, although that's mm-hmm. not that's more about protesting. That's a little bit more tangential. But all these cases that we keep talking about could well get there in in time for next year. All right. Well, one last item this week, also being challenged in court, is the Trump administration's so-called public charge rule that immigrant activists say will prompt people to drop needed government health and nutrition benefits for fear it will jeopardize their own or a family member's ability to get a green card and ultimately citizenship. To some extent, this is happening even before the rule has taken effect, um, which is actually supposed to go into... Into effect on October 15th, right but we're seeing people actually dropping these these programs.
1: There appears to be some evidence that that's happening, given the recent Census Bureau report that shows an increase in the uninsured. Um, Looking at the data more closely, a lot of the increase uh, occurred among um, the Latino population. And so, um, you know, there are a few other reasons that could have happened, including perhaps they were on Medicaid before and now because the economy is better, they're doing better financially and can't qualify for Medicaid anymore and perhaps didn't sign up for an Affordable Care Act plan. But a lot of the un- the reduced uninsurance too was around children and um, Latino children, and so it does appear that there's probably a link in there. The fear of that people believe that they wouldn't be able to, you know, secure their residency status or immigration status based on seeking services like Medicaid.
0: And and in some cases, just like food stamps. Um, I mean, it's it's not it's Medicaid, but it's also a bunch of other programs. it's, it's got the the immigrant community very very much concerned about
2: yes uh traditionally it's been cash assistance and now they're looking at housing and and medicaid and other things um and this is something that you know for the past couple of years even before this was introduced there has been this chilling effect that we've seen and it's important to remember that legal residents um, can't access Medicaid until they've been here for five years, and people who are foregoing their benefits may be doing so for their American-born children. So it's, it's a big issue. Um, as Kimberly noted, we've already seen some, some statistics that bear this out. Okay. Well, that is the news for this week.
0: Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview, and then we will come back for our extra credits. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my Kaiser Health News colleague, Kara Anthony, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month. She's joining us from our Midwest Bureau in St. Louis. Hi, Kara. Hi, Julie. So tell us who this month's patient is and what kind of interaction she had with the medical system. This
4: month, we meet Brianna Snitchler. She's a 27-year-old user experience designer who was living in Detroit at the time. She decided that she wanted to have a uh, cyst removed that she's lived with for a long, long time. It's a cyst on her abdomen. And she thought that she had the golden ticket. She had insurance for the first time in her adult life. And so she went on this pursuit to get it removed, but Ran into a facility fee that was totally unexpected, and now she's on the hook for a bill that's more than $3,300. Now,
0: let's walk through what happened. So she goes to the doctor and says, I have this cyst, I've had it most of my life, and I'd like to get it taken off. And the doctor says?
4: Her doctor says, first, let's check this growth for cancer. And so she takes steps to do that. She uh, schedules an appointment, her doctor directs her to Henry Ford Hospital in downtown Detroit because of Brianna's schedule. She says, hey, you know, they will accommodate you at this hospital with this hospital system Um, is probably best for you. And so Brianna says, okay, I'll go and have the biopsy here. She keeps her street clothes on the entire time. It's a 20 minute procedure. She's in and out. She's never put to sleep or anything like that. And then, you know, the bill comes. And she's totally surprised at the, the charge. There's an operating room services fee on there for $2,200. And she's just completely taken back by this.
0: And of course, she's on the hook for this, right? Because she has a high deductible health plan.
4: Yeah, so she had a high deductible health plan through United Healthcare, And so that was about $3,200. And so before the insurance would even kick in, you know, of course, she had to meet her deductible. But I think as a young millennial, Brianna was just thinking, hey, you know, insurance is my golden ticket. And I'm going to go ahead and take care of some things that I've always wanted to do. This was definitely not the highest thing on the list, but something that she thought was reasonable because finally she had insurance, but she ends up finding out that this high facility fee um, will be her responsibility.
0: And so after all this, she finds out the cyst is benign, but now she can't even afford to have it taken off, right?
4: Yeah. So the the results came back benign, but just mentally, I think that she and her partner, they're both still in a lot of shock. No one warned them of this fee um, ahead of time. We later learned after we started making calls that Henry Ford actually has a pilot program that they launched in 2018 that warns people of such fees but only for certain tests. And so when I asked them like hey, is Brianna's the kind of test that Brianna received which was a um, ultrasound you needle know, guided biopsy they said you know, is that test on the list um, for when you launch this program you know outright for for all patients and the representative at the hospital just said, Hey, uh, I can't say if that'll be one of the ones that will warn people about. And even when Brianna started making calls, uh, a representative at the hospital said, hey, we're not legally required to tell you about fees ahead of time. It's your responsibility to to check that sort of thing. And so it's just really a lesson that we all can learn from about calling ahead and also um, these facility fees that are so common that so many people run into.
0: So how can you avoid these facility fees? I know a lot of people say, well, I called and when I was scheduling, I asked how much it would cost and they said they couldn't tell me. And frequently the doctor sends you off for tests and the doctor has no idea how much the tests cost. So how do you find out?
4: Yeah, you definitely need to ask right up front to say, hey, is there a facility fee? And also we learned after talking to advocates that it's possible for you to avoid the hospital setting if you are having just a simple outpatient procedure. So you, in this case, Brianna Snitchler could have gone possibly to a doctor's office or a surgery center where the facility fee could have been much less. But first she had to know that such thing existed. But once you, you know, leap over that hurdle and you know that this thing is out there that you might have to pay, especially if you have a high deductible, it really pays off to shop around. And even if you do go to a doctor's office, Office, I would advise you to even ask about a facility fee then, because if it's not an independent doctor, that office may be attached to a hospital where you might run into a fee uh, either way. But, you know, it's good to know that up front and the facility fee might be much less if you're outside of the hospital grounds. You know, 250 yards can make a difference between being on campus and having a huge fee and being off campus and paying a lesser fee. So it really pays to shop around and ask questions up front. Well, a rather expensive lesson in this case.
0: Kara Anthony, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Rebecca, why don't you go first this
2: week? All right. So I have... With the Affordable Care Act's future in doubt, evidence grows that it has saved lives. This is by Amy Goldstein in the Washington Post. And so, what Amy did is she kind of looked back and tried to gather evidence and say, what has the impact of the Affordable Care Act been? She looked at states like Michigan and Ohio. And I think that as journalists, we often tend to be forward looking and we talk about what might happen. It's also really important to go back and try to figure out what has happened. And in this case, she tried to. Put aside a little bit of the political noise that we hear. We've heard so many debates over the years over this and look at the different studies and and what's happened in terms of um, people being hospitalized less and potentially lives being saved. Kimberly.
1: Um, I chose a story from the Los Angeles Times that's titled "The FDA Tried to Ban Flavors Years Before the Vaping Outbreak." Top Obama officials rejected the plan, and it's by Emily uh, Baumgarter at uh, the LA Times. Um, and so it's just interesting to see there. There have been a lot of members of Congress who have uh, called out the FDA for being too slow on, uh, you know, regulating e-cigarettes, and there are basically two different crises that are happening right now in public health, if you will, one that has to do specifically with, it appears, THC-laced vaping products that are causing severe lung injury and also um, deaths. And uh, second to that has been the fact that more and more teens are going on to these e-cigarette uh, that are flavored like candy and like fruit. Um, and so those, those two uh, different kind of crises that are going on have, have really called attention to uh, the need to re- more strictly regulate these products um, and perhaps uh, you know, could have been done a few years ago.
0: I think one of the interesting things in that story is how active the, the vaping sort of lobbyists have been all along. Although I think in the case of the Obama administration, it was mostly the owners of the stores. They were con- the, the Obama administration appeared concerned about, you know, putting all of these small business people uh, out of business.
1: Yeah. And they're concerned about pitting them against the larger tobacco industry, which has already submitted to the FDA to um, allow their e-cigarettes to go on the market. So those larger companies that are still responsible for about 500,000 deaths in the United States from traditional smoking every year do have that leg up against these smaller businesses.
3: Yes, there's been a lot of criticism of the move to ban flavored e-cigarettes, but no move to just ban flavored combustible cigarettes. Which kill a lot more people. Yes, and are still perfectly legal. All right, Alice. Um, I chose a story that was a collaboration between ProPublica and uh, AL.com in Alabama. Um, these sheriffs release sick inmates to avoid paying their hospital bills by Connor Sheets, and um, it is a really horrifying look into a— practice that is going on in a bunch of states, but nowhere more than in Alabama, where when inmates in jails are extremely sick, having a medical emergency, um, the sheriffs put them out on medical bond, um, send them to the hospital, and so they are not responsible for the cost of their care. And often... They,
0: they being the prison, They the prison, yeah. the jails. Or the jails.
3: Mm-hmm, and, um, and then often, once they recover, they rearrest them and drag them back. Um, and there, there's just been a ton of reporting... About Alabama prisons over the last few years. There's a lot of lawsuits about what's going on there. Um, This is just another um, angle that deserves coverage. And I think an important point that they make is that a lot of these medical emergencies are caused in the first place by medical neglect in the very jails. So they talk about a person with diabetes who, you know, was going into a diabetic coma, who had this happen to him. Um, but he was in a diabetic coma because, uh, you know, his family brought his medication, his insulin, and gave all these instructions to the jail that completely didn't get followed at all. Um, so a lot of attention should be paid, you know, um, the incarcerated population generally is more sick than the general population, and the care they receive is far worse.
0: All right. Well, mine is from my former colleague at NPR, Nell Greenfield-Boyce. It's called Workers Are Falling Ill, Even Dying After Making Kitchen Countertops, and it's about an upsurge in cases of silicosis, a severe lung disease that workers are getting from breathing dust after cutting engineered stone for kitchen and bathroom counters. Engineered stone is getting more popular because its care tends to be easier than granite or quartz, but... but... But engineered stone contains much more silica, and it's often cut at small fabrication firms that may or may not realize exactly how dangerous the dust is to its workers. It is a very impressive piece of work. You should read it or listen to it. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at Health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at J Rodner. At Alice Holstein.
2: At Leonard K.L. At Rebecca adams CC
0: We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.